Chapter 14 of A Magician Among the Spirits by Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 What You Must Believe to Be a Spiritualist. There is an old adage that truth is stranger than fiction. But some of the miraculous things attributed to the spirits would not be told, could not be told, even by such a famous writer of wild fiction as Baron Munchausen. But under the protecting mantle of spiritualism, these vivid tales are believed by millions. The conglomerated things you are asked to accept in good faith are almost inconceivable. If you do not, then you are not a real spiritualist. There must not be the shadow of a doubt in your mind as to the truth of the extravagant feats claimed to be performed by the spirits through their earthly messengers, the mediums. Among the spirits who have come back and written stories, according to the spiritualists, are no less personages than Shakespeare, Bacon, Charles Dickens, who completed his Mystery of Edwin Drood, Jack London, Edgar Allan Poe, Mark Twain, and lately Oscar Wilde. Magazines have been published by the Spirits, and there are numbers of cases where entire books have been claimed to be their work. I ask the reader if he believes the following incidents which I have selected from various spiritualistic publications in my library. If so, he is entitled to join the cult. The Medium and Daybreak of June ninth, 1871 tells of an instance where the spirits floated Mr. Hearn to Mrs. Guppy's in open day as was reported by us two weeks ago. This has been speedily followed by other cases, some of which are exceedingly well substantiated. On Saturday evening, as a circle consisting of about nine persons sat within locked doors with Mr. Hearn and Williams at these mediums' lodgings, 61 Lambs Conduit Street, after a considerable time, an object was felt to come upon the table, and when a light was struck, their visitor was found to be Mrs. Guppy. She was not by any means dressed for an excursion, as she was without shoes, and had a memorandum book in one hand and a pen in the other. The last word inscribed in the book was onions. The writing was not yet dry, and there was ink on the pen. When Mrs. Guppy regained her consciousness, she stated that she had been making some entries of expenses, became insensible, and knew nothing until she found herself in the circle. A party of gentlemen accompanied Mrs. Guppy home. A deputation went in first and questioned Miss Nayland as to how or when Mrs. Guppy had been missed. She said that she had been sitting in the same room. Mrs. Guppy was making entries in her book, and Miss Nayland was reminding her of the items to put down. Miss Nayland was reading a newspaper in the intervals of conversation, 
and when she raised her head from her reading, Mrs. Guppy could not be seen. It was intimated, through raps on the table, that the spirits had taken her, and as Mrs. Guppy had every confidence in the beneficence of these agents, Mrs. Guppy's abduction gave no concern. Both Mr. Hearn and Mr. Williams were floated the same evening. Mr. Williams found himself at the top of the stairs, the doors being shut all the while. At the seance at the spiritual institution, a young lady who was a skeptic was levitated. At Mr. Hearn and Williams' seance, at the same place, a geranium in a pot was brought into the room from the staircase window above, while doors and windows were closed. Mrs. Burns had a knife taken out of her hand, which Katie, the spirit, said she would deposit at Lizzie's, meaning Mrs. Guppy. A gentleman had two spirit photographs taken from his hand. A cushion was carried from the front room to the back room, where the seance was held, the door being shut. Mr. Williams' coat was taken off while his hands were held. Mr. Hearn was floated. Mr. Andrews, a gentleman who has not the use of his limbs, held a very interesting conversation with Katie, who promised to try and benefit him. The generous sympathy of these good spirits was very apparent from their eagerness to help the distressed. A letter from Northampton intimates that similar phenomena are being produced in that town. These feats are doing a mighty work in convincing hundreds of the power. At a seance given by Mrs. Guppy, medium and daybreak, November 18, 1870, the spirits, knowing it was tea time, first of all brought through the solid wall the dishes and placed them on the table, then transported cake and hot tea, and in the center of the table was placed violets, mignonette, geranium leaves, and fern leaves, all wet with rain, which had been gathered by the spirits. Hearn, with whom Williams was associated, made it his business to have his spirits bring in the slates from the hallway through the closed door. He had books ooze through the solid floors from the library overhead and drop on the seance table. Williams would be entranced in the cabinet and the spirits would disrobe him much to his entranced embarrassment. On the testimony of Orville Pitcher, John King at a seance stood in the full glare of the daylight for twenty minutes. He then retired and was followed by no less a personage than Oliver Cromwell, who walked around, embraced his medium and all the sitters. He afterwards controlled the medium and gave utterance to thoughts of a most elevated nature. Mrs. Catherine Berry goes on record, Medium and Daybreak, July 9, 1876, that through the mediumship of Mrs. Guppy, she had seen the Sultan of Zanzibar on the previous day. 
He had a handsome copper-colored face and a large black beard. On his head he had a white turban such as worn by the spirit of John King. Dr. Monk, ex-preacher, disappeared one night from the bed in which he slept with another man in Bristol, and to his surprise, when he awoke, found himself in Swindon. Spiritualism by Joseph McCabe Mr. Harris, his wife, and a friend, who happened to be a medium, were just about to sit down to a midday meal when the medium, a man named Wilkinson, was suddenly controlled. He fought hard against this unexpected behavior of his spirit control, but to no avail. In his unconscious state, he jangled money in his pocket, then pointed to a cigarette box which was lying on a shelf in the opposite corner. In that box, it seemed, was the sum of seventeen shillings sixpence. Mr. and Mrs. Harris were wondering what this all meant, when suddenly the box virtually flew from the shelf, passed through the closed door, and was gone. Mrs. Harris immediately left the room and tried to find trace of the box. She found it upstairs underneath the pillow on the bed. The money was intact. An Amazing Seance and an Exposure by Sidney A. Mosley, page 21. At a seance held on February 15, 1919, at the home of Mr. Wallace Pennylin at Cardiff by Mr. Thomas, there were present Sir Arthur, Lady Doyle, and others, numbering about twenty in all. Thomas, speaking from his chair, apparently still under control, then asked, Is Lady Doyle cold? Then Lady Doyle said she felt a little bit shivery, and Thomas said, Oh, you'll be warm soon. And in a second or two, something fell on her lap. At the close of the seance, this was found to be the Holland jacket, which somehow had been removed from the medium. An Amazing Seance, page 51. Most mediums today have perfected the art of levitating tables and chairs and other pieces of furniture, though I doubt if any of them have ever reached the mark of perfection attained by Palladino with her years of experience, inscrutable face, and uncanny knowing when to seize opportunities to fool her investigators. But you are also asked to believe that Daniel Dunglas' home floated out of one window over the street and rushed through another one into a different room. Colonel Olcott asks in communication, What is this performance compared with the experience of Webster Eddy, a younger brother of the Eddy brothers, when a grown man, in the presence of three reputable witnesses, was carried out of a window and over the top of a house and landed in a ditch quarter of a mile distant. William Eddy was carried bodily to a distant wood and was kept there three days under control and was carried back again. 
Horatio Eddy, was taken bodily three miles to a mountaintop and was obliged to find his way home alone the next morning. In Lyceum Hall, Buffalo, Horatio was levitated for twenty-six consecutive evenings, while bound to a chair, and he and the chair were hung on a chandelier hook in the ceiling. He was then lowered safely to his former position. Mary Eddy was raised to the ceiling in Hope Chapel in New York City, and while there wrote her name. Her little boy, Warren, was floated many evenings in dark circles and squealed lustily all the while to be let down. Since 1347, authenticated reports prove that similar experiences occurred to Edward Irving, Margaret Rule, St. Philip of Neri, St. Catherine of Columbine, Loyola, Savonarola, Jenny Lord, Madame Hoff, and many others. Colonel Olcott omitted mentioning myself. I stand ready to vouch for the fact that I personally floated in the air and levitated many times and marveled at the ease with which I did it, but I woke up later in the night. Horatio Eddy, in a personal letter to me under date of July 6, 1920, wrote, A book six inches thick would not hold my history. I cannot give any version of our floating in the air, but it is just as stated in communication. Webster Eddy is my youngest brother. My father did put live coals on William's head and poured hot water down his back. We all used to get horsewhipped by him to prove the devil was in us. In another letter, dated July 3, 1922, he writes that he and his sister had been giving a joint exhibition with Ira Erastus Davenport, who had been ordered by the authorities in Syracuse to take out a juggler's license, but would not. The result was while we were holding a private seance, we were handcuffed and taken to jail. On the way, the handcuffs were taken off. We did not ride to jail, but were dragged along through the snow for more than a mile. They did not put us in cells. As I told them, if they did, I would have every prisoner's door open before daylight, so two police sat up all night with us. In the morning, a Mr. MacDonald of 7 Beach Street went our bail for $15,000. Our trial was to be held in Schenectady in March. We arrived there and had to wait three weeks. Then they put it over to Albany three months later, and our bail was renewed. We stayed in Albany until court was almost through. The day our trial was to take place, the judge stated we claimed it to be a phase of religion and ruled it out of court. If you are to be a spiritualist, you must believe that fifteen persons, several of them reporters, met in Mrs. Young's parlors in 27th Street, New York City, 
and at the request of the spirit several English walnuts were placed near the piano, and that the piano rose and descended on the walnuts without crushing them. Colonel Olcott writes that seven of the heaviest persons in the room were asked to sit upon the instrument. The invitation being accepted, Mrs. Young played a march, and the instrument and the persons surmounting it were lifted several feet. A portfolio containing Eliza White's Katie King note and John's duplicate was at this time in my coat pocket, where it had been constantly since the preceding evening. John broke in upon our expressions of surprise by rapping out, do you folks want me to commit forgery for you? I can bring you here the blank check of any national bank and sign upon it the name of any president, cashier, or other official. I thanked his invisible highness and declined the favor upon the sufficient ground that the police did not believe in spiritualism and I did not care to risk the chance of convincing them in case the forged papers should be found in my possession. People from the Other World, Henry S. Olcott, page 458. In a house on Ferretstone Road, Hornsey, London, explosions like bombs were heard, lumps of coal were propelled by some unknown agency in all directions. Brooms were thrown violently from a landing into the kitchen. Glass and china had been smashed and windows broken, and to top it all off, a boy sitting on a chair had been raised with the chair from the ground. The London Evening News, February 15, 1921. Vincenzo Gulatz, a Sicilian violinist at Batavia, Illinois, well known by reason of his Chautauqua concerts, decided to take a bride chosen for him after death by the companion of my most thrilling hours, my departed wife. She died in August, and I was almost frantic with grief, but in the night I could sense her presence, and I followed her guidance implicitly. My new mate will comfort her. The New York World, May 17, 1922 Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in an interview at the Hotel Ambassador, New York City, as reported by the New York World, April 11, 1922, stated that, in Summerland, marriage is on a higher and more spiritual plane than here, and is merely the mating of affinities who are always happy. No babies are born, however. The spirits, as they go about their daily tasks, keep a watchful eye on earthly matters and are extremely interested in the births here. He stated that there is a plain called Paradise where normally respectable persons go after death, and this plain is only slightly removed from this earthly sphere. 
bad people when they die are transported to a plane considerably lower than that tenanted by respectable ones, and they continue to sink lower and lower unless they repent. After a considerable probationary period, they are able to climb into paradise. The average length of time they stay in paradise is about 40 years after which they float to higher and still higher planes. All mediums have guardian angels to whom they are especially subject, but they can communicate with other spirits, the guardian angel acting as a sort of master of ceremonies upon such occasions. Sir Arthur proclaimed that he once saw his dead mother's face in the ectoplasm of a medium. This was a few months after her death, and he added, There was not the slightest question about it. That was while I was in Australia. The face seemed as solid as in life. My mother wrote me a letter through the medium signing a pet name which could not have been known to the medium. There is no question about having been in communication with my son either. An account in the New York American, April 5, 1923, says that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle told the reporters that he had recently hurt the ligaments in his right leg from the shin to the thigh, and that his son Kingsley, who had died in the war, had massaged the limb with beneficial results. I was sitting with Evan Powell, a very unusual and powerful medium, he said, when my son Kingsley appeared, saying, It will be all right, Daddy. I will get you fixed up all right, and began massaging my leg. In an article in the London Magazine, August 1920, Mr. C. W. Leadbeater, a prominent member of the Theosophical Society and an authority on occult theories, speaking on the apport of spirits, says, Living astrally as they do, the fourth dimension is a commonplace fact of their nature, and this makes it quite simple for them to do many little tricks which to us appear wonderful, such as the removal of articles from a locked box or an apport of flowers into a closed room. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in his book Wanderings of a Spiritualist, devotes seven pages to Charles Bailey, who was known as an apport medium. Sir Arthur defends Bailey, notwithstanding that he has been exposed many times. Among the things Bailey claims to have apported are birds, oriental plants, small animals, and a young shark, 18 inches long, which he pretended the spirit guides had brought from India and passed through the walls into the seance room. Mrs. Johnston of Newcastle-on-Tyne, England, told me personally that the spirit of her deceased son was very mischievous at times and caused her a great deal of embarrassment. 
one of his favorite jokes when she was on a journey was to open her traveling bag and allow all her belongings to be strewn about. She also told me that the boy's spirit would light the fire for her to get breakfast. A widow in Brooklyn, New York, became a mother and claimed that the spirit of her husband was the father of the child. The celebrated Professor Hare, a professor of chemistry in the University of Pennsylvania, graduate of Yale and Harvard, and associated with the Smithsonian Institute of Washington, tells that when traveling with a boy and while in his room, after they had locked up the iron-balled spirit scope, shaving case, etc., in his carpet bag, in some inscrutable manner, all the contents were taken from the bag and fell about him in a shower. Anna Stewart, a medium of Terre Haute, could produce spirits that would weigh from practically nothing to more than a hundred pounds, and spiritualists are expected to believe that one human being can go into a trance and bring forth three or four beings with his own spirit form. W.T. Stead, one of the most brilliant spiritualists, now dead, claimed to have seen the spirit of an Egyptian who left the earthly life in the time of Samir Amid, 3,000 years ago. For several minutes, the spirit was distinctly visible to us munching an apple, but I felt so exhausted by the loss of magnetism and nervous as well that I begged him to leave us. I will never forget his soulful expression. Florence Marriott, the daughter of Captain Marriott, the famous writer of sea stories, has written a number of books on spiritualism. She wrote one of the best introductions in favor of spiritualism that I ever read. Nevertheless, some of the things she claims to have witnessed and lived through are of such a nature that I will only give a brief mention of them without comment, letting the reader form his own opinion. They are taken from her book, There Is No Death. She tells of her brother-in-law coming into the room after rifle practice, and while showing his rifle, it was accidentally discharged, the ball passing through the wall within two inches of my eldest daughter's head. She claims that she foresaw the occurrence the night previous. She writes of having joined Mr. D. Oily Cart's Patience Company to play the part of Lady Jane, and tells that the different members of the company on different occasions mentioned the fact that although she was standing on the stage, she appeared to be seated in the stalls. This always occurred at the same time, just before the end of the second act. In another place, she says, we unanimously asked for flowers. It being December and a hard frost, simultaneously we smelt the smell of fresh earth, and we were told to light the gas again, when the following extraordinary sight met our eyes. In the middle of the sitters, still holding hands, was piled up 
on the carpet an immense quantity of mold, which had been torn up apparently with the roots that accompanied it. There were Laurestinius, Laurels, and Holly, and several others, just as they had been pulled out of the earth and thrown in the midst of us. Mrs. Guppy looked anything but pleased at the sight of her carpet, and begged the spirits to bring cleaner things next time. They then told us to extinguish the lights again, and each sitter was to wish mentally for something for himself. I wished for a yellow butterfly, knowing it was December, and as I thought of it, a little cardboard box was put in my hand. Prince Albert whispered to me, Have you got anything? Yes, I said, but not what I asked for. I expect they have given me a piece of jewelry. When the gas was relit, I opened the box, and there lay two yellow butterflies, dead, of course, but nonetheless extraordinary for that. While talking of a seance with Katie King, she said, she told me to take the scissors and cut off her hair. She had a profusion of ringlets flowing to her waist that night. I obeyed religiously, hacking the hair wherever I could, whilst she kept on saying, Cut more, cut more, not for yourself, you know, because you cannot take it away. So I cut off, curl after curl, and as fast as they fell to the ground, the hair grew again on her head. When I had finished, Katie asked me to examine her hair and see if I could detect any place where I had used the scissors, and I did so without any effect. Neither was a severed hair to be found. It had vanished out of sight. In another place, she says, Once a conductor spoke to me. I am not aware of your name, he said. And I thought, no, my friend, and you won't be aware of it just yet either. But a spirit here wishes you would come up to the cabinet. I advanced, expecting to see some friend, and there stood a Catholic priest, with his hand extended in blessing. I knelt down, and he gave me the usual benediction, and then closed the curtain. Did you know the spirit? the conductor asked me. I shook my head, and he continued, He was Father Hayes, the well-known priest in this city. I suppose you are a Catholic? I told him yes, and went back to my seat. The conductor addressed me again. I think Father Hayes must have come to pave the way for some of your friends, he said. Here is a spirit who says she has come for a lady by the name of Florence, who has just crossed the sea. Do you answer to that description? I was about to say yes, when the curtain parted again, and my daughter Florence ran across the room and fell into my arms. Mother, she exclaimed, I said I would come with you and look after you, didn't I? I looked at her. She was exactly the same in appearance as when she came to me in England under the different mediumships of Florence Cook, Arthur Coleman, 
Charles Williams, and William Ellington. She tells of a businessman who attended a seance every night and presented a white flower to the spirit of his wife who had died on her wedding day eleven years before. The book is full of such incidents as these, but I think enough have been repeated to show the reader what it is necessary to believe to be a good spiritualist. In Judge Edmund's book, Spiritualism, we read that it was customary to receive on blank sheets of paper messages from the spirits of well-known men, that Benjamin Franklin came in accompanied by two other spirits, that a pencil got up of its own accord and wrote five lines of ancient Hebrew, that books were levitated from a table numerous times, and a number of other incidents which drew upon the reader's imagination. Daniel Douglas Home, in testifying in July 1869, as reported in the London Times, told of an incident which had occurred several years previous. We were, he said, in a large room in the Salon de Quatorze. The emperor and empress were present. I am now telling the story as I heard the emperor tell it. A table was moved, then a hand was seen to come. It was a very beautifully formed hand. There were pencils on the table. It lifted, not the one next to it, but the one on the far side. We heard the sound of writing and saw it writing on fine note paper. The hand passed before me and went to the emperor and he kissed the hand. It went to the empress. She withdrew from its touch, and the hand followed her. The emperor said, Do not be frightened, and she kissed it too. The hand seemed to be like a person thinking, and as if it were saying, Why should I? It came back to me. It had written the word Napoleon, and it remains written now. The writing was the autograph of the Emperor Napoleon I, who had an exceedingly beautiful hand. Mr. Holm also said that the Emperor of Russia, as well as the Emperor Napoleon, had seen hands and had taken hold of them when they seemed to float away into thin air. Such are the things spiritualists are expected to believe and do believe. I could continue to recite incidents ad infinitum, ad nauseum, but I believe the reader can form his own judgment from the above. It is the kind of material which drives people insane for when some poor, sick human being is just on the verge of recovery, such nonsensical utterances often overthrow reason. Is it any wonder that the population of our insane asylums is swelled with followers who have attempted to believe these things? End of chapter 14